This is the 966 episode 107. Mr. Richard Wilson. Hey, how you Hello. Doing? I'm doing well. A rare solo, the rare solo Lucian Richard uh, Enterprise. I know. We haven't done one of these. Joint. A, few, a joint, a JV. Yes. Yeah. Um, with our Saudi subsidiary. We have not done this in a while, just you and me. It's been a few months, actually, because we've had so many amazing guests. And we have so many amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks and months that actually, you know, a little breather, not too bad, at least for us. Um, it, it, yeah. it helps. It, it, exactly right. I mean, we're booked into the end of November now. And, um, and it has been a great run. You're traveling. We got to mm-hmm. take we got to do this every now and then. So and it's and it's kind of nice just to yab with you. Indeed. Um, and there's a it was sort of a busy week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> news wise. <laughs> you know, so there'll be plenty to talk about. Um, and we, and we do uh, we will be getting to the crisis and the war in Gaza um, and uh, the war declared by Israel and Gaza uh, this week uh, in just a few moments. We're also going to be talking about an interview that Kareem Benzema gave recently uh, to the media arm of the Saudi Pro League, which I thought was really interesting as well. Um, and we're going to have a yellow segment with, that's kind of jam packed full of stuff. So we will have a busy, fun episode here. <laughs> Uh, and some heavy, uh, heavy episode as well, but uh, definitely not a vacation episode day at the no. beach kind of thing. So no, <laughs> no rest <laughs> for the worry. And yes, I did get in very late last night, super delayed from Geneva, like a six hour delay, which you were on, was the, not on cool. the tarmac. On yeah, the- for like oh, three rough. hours, which was like and then there was a three hour delay right out of the gate. So it was just like, OK, <laughs> um, yeah. So and anyway. That- that's yeah. so tough on the back end because you're just, you know, you're already anticipating getting home to see Sophie and the kids. Yep. And and then, uh, sorry, I, let's not relive that. Sorry. No, it's, it's okay. But the, the like, I could feel the disappointment on the other side when it was just like, not only am I going to be late, yeah. I'm going to be so late <laughs> that you will probably be gone when I get back. So anyway, but, uh, but we're here and we're, we're alive and kicking. It was a great trip. Um, and we, Richard, we just talked about this before we kicked off here. Um, we, I want to talk a little bit about Al Ola. Had an awesome two days there with um, Abdul Rahman Al Gaban, our friend, and he, it was just super fun. And we kind of did it all. But I'll save that for you know, first of all, Instagram and LinkedIn. I'm going to share some pics there as well. But then we'll talk about it in a later uh, episode because um, I wanted to follow on your really awesome one big thing when you went to Al Ola a few months ago. Um, just it was. Incredible, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll I, focus on the news this week. And we'll, I, we'll talk about I think it in a couple, couple. That's weeks. a good idea. I think that's segment worthy because it, it. I'm sure it was. It was sure it was amazing. It must have been so much fun to be there with Abdul Rahman, but just to be there is amazing. But yeah, definitely that's segment worthy. I think that's yeah. smart, and also it's a good management of your content output. You know, you got to manage all your feeds, make sure everything's hitting high. You know, indeed, you got to post <laughs> at the right time, tag yeah. the right people. You know, got to hit the right keywords on LinkedIn to really get it. To sp- I don't know. What I'm, I'm actually, that's I, t- all that's I told you, your stuff is great. I told you. Uh, you know, after I visited Alula, I opened. I didn't. I have. I did an Instagram, and it was so. It was such a. It was such an out of touch old thing. You know, it was too long. There was no. There was no design to it. It was just sort of throwing things on, and you know, a, you know, a video here uh, in the old town, this and that. You know, mostly me going, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing." It's completely useless. I think my kids looked at it, maybe. But uh, I'm pretty sure I'm quite confident you can do a more polished product than what I did. Well, if it, um, I, and actually, I didn't see it. I follow you on Instagram, so I don't know why I didn't see it. <laughs> so, I mean, there you go. Maybe, maybe the algorithm is just like, I don't know if we can push this out. To the <laughs> this is like, you probably would. Illusion's already heard this. He doesn't need to see it. Well, it, it yeah, I mean, it, it was just, I mean, first of all, as you know, the place is made for Instagram. Like, it's, oh, it's wow. like, it's just, I, I, um, so we'll save it. We'll save it. But um, yeah, I mean, mind blowing. And it's one of those things where you have this impression going in. You're like, all right, expectations are high. And then you they get blown away. It's one of the best feelings in life to have that. So um, we'll, it we'll definitely do it over it. It, 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 it uh, over performs. It yeah. really is amazing. And on yeah. the Instagram, it was funny because I did a few tours, um, you know, so I was with a the group. They were never big. And as I mentioned, they're well run. But I think on every one of them, there was one or two young Saudi women who would peel off 
and and you know do a picture you know the you know with the with the flowing hair and the back you know it you know this is they're in the middle of a sort of geological amazing thing but they're doing these pictures and poses and stuff so mm -hmm. yes i'm yeah. out of touch yeah it, it's like an influencer's dream and uh, it was just it was crazy and it was really good to have it in the middle of a of a trip because it was very 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 relaxing uh, it was a full-on reset which was just so awesome so yeah what okay so I, right, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah, hard yeah. to not talk yeah, about sorry, it because it was so sorry. cool no no not not at all not at all um but uh yeah so we'll save it and let's jump right into it this week episode 107 we've got a uh, lot to talk about of course so richard what is your one big thing i already know what it is but it's a hard one. thing this week it's a, it's hard, a hard one, one. yeah uh, and it's not when you and I talked about it, I, I felt like we have a responsibility to talk about it, but it's such a, a, a drastic, hard news story. But <clears throat> I will say, I mentioned this today when we were communicating, the Seustic Review doesn't just do Saudi. And this week, you know, in, in uh, the aftermath of the uh, attack by uh, Hamas on, on, you know, on Israel, uh, just a tremendous resource, the Seustrug Review. I mean, every day there's a collection on the region and that sort of thing, and it's obviously been very heavy on that event and the aftermath. So it's it's uh, you know it's really a great resource. So let's recap, uh, as if you anybody needs to know, um, the Palestinian Islamic Resistance Movement Hamas launched an attack on Israel um, October seventh. That really was unprecedented in its uh, ferocity, scale, and violence. And so, and as of Wednesday, yesterday, the death toll within Israel had surpassed 1,200, many more bodies to count, another 2,900 people injured in Israel. Among the dead are at least 14 American citizens. Um, uh, undetermined, uh, undetermined number uh, of Americans have been taken hostage by Hamas. Uh, at least 100 Israeli citizens and soldiers being held hostage. Uh, an estimated 2,200 rockets were fired towards southern and central Israel, including Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, by Hamas. That's according to IDF. Hamas claimed they sent they they fired 5,000. Um, sort of horrific, and we've all seen the pictures and the footage and stuff. And it's uh, notable for the brutality of it. Notable for the targets, which were mostly civilians. Uh, very ISIS-like. Um, in many ways. And um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Israel has declared war on Gaza and the retaliation has begun in earnest. There's uh, significant bombing. There's, uh, you know, I, I, we could quote numbers of people who are going to die in this, but it's going to change every day and go up every day. And, and Gaza, you know, quite possibly might be leveled or significant parts of it. Um, and I, I think if you read the Seustrug Review, we've included any number of analyses, commentary, reporting, and many people who listened to this show would have read it on themselves, not Seustrug Review, but other reporting. And there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of commentary. Obviously, there's a lot of surprise. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we can rehash all the opinions here on why now, how did this happen? Um, you know, we can speculate on what comes next. We've already seen the beginnings of what comes next. And obviously, the United States has swung in very strongly behind Israel, as, as have a lot of other countries. Um, so let's talk about this. And I want to talk a little bit about Gaza. I want to talk a little bit about the surprise. Um, and let's talk about just the numbers in Gaza. That got half of Gaza's population is under the age of 19. Gaza's population is about 2.3 million. Half is under the age of 19. Since 2007, Israel has imposed an air, land, and sea blockade on the Gaza Strip, um, a move they said was necessary, believed necessary, to prevent Hamas attacks on the country. So 16 years of, is, is, of a blockade uh, and a ban on imports and exports, exports obviously have crippled the economy. And unemployment rate in Gaza is 40% above 40%, more than 65% of the population is under the poverty line, and 63% of Gazans are deemed food insecure. Between 2008 and 2023, Israeli airstrikes killed 6,400, more than 6,400 Palestinians in occupied territories, 5,300 of those in Gaza. Uh, 
is according to UN. Over that same period, Israel suffered 308 fatalities. Um, and let me just, you know, of late, as we've seen, um, there's been an uptick in army enabled attacks on the villages throughout the West Bank by settler auxiliaries, uh, increasing incursions by prominent Israeli politicians and settler groups in the Haram al-Sharif and Jerusalem's old city. Um, some of these done in explicit support of, of formal annexation. And, and speaking last month at the UN General Assembly, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu displayed a map that showed both the West Bank and Gaza Strip as part of Israel. And so the point of this little discursion is not to justify anything. The point of this is really to suggest that none of us should be surprised that this circumstance in Gaza the, has, has uh, been there for not only for the last, you know, since 2007, but many years before, and that you have a, um, a very young, uh, disenfranchised, um, jobless for the most part population that deeply resents Israel and its policies, deeply resents how it's portrayed in the world. And I guess the point being is, is as surprising and brutal as this attack was, um, the fundamentals of the, of, the, of the search of the situation suggest that it was going to happen and that you can't get away with. And that's sort of where I want to go with this, um, because so much depends now so much of the future depends now on what happens. I'm sorry, so much of the future depends on what happens now. And we've already seen sort of the start of the regular playbook. And I want to um, I want to take a few quotes, one from Faisal Abbas, who's a, a journalist for the Arab News. And he wrote on October 7th in an article called Hamas has crossed the Rubicon, what next? This is what Faisal says. We've invited Faisal on the show, by the way. Come on the show. Given recent history, quote, given recent history, the outcome is pretty predictable. Israel will say it has the right to defend itself, declare a full-scale war, and inflict the maximum pain possible in retaliation. Hamas will declare the outcome, no matter what it is, a victory. Many Palestinians will celebrate the unprecedented early success. Shortly after, the same Palestinians will suffer the devastating consequences at the hands, tanks, and aircraft of the Israeli's army. After that, Arab countries, namely the GCC, will come to the rescue and help rebuild Gaza, unquote. So that's a leading Saudi journalist. Um, a leading American journalist, we all know, um, Robert Friedman, wrote for the New York Times in an article called Israel has never needed to be smarter than in this moment. He notes, quote, I believe one reason Hamas not only launched its assault now, but also seemingly ordered it to be as murderous as possible was to trigger an Israeli overreaction. Um, like the invasion of Gaza Strip that would lead to massive Palestinian civilian casualties in that way forced Saudi Arabia to back away from the U.S. broker deal now in discussion to promote normalization between Riyadh and the Jewish state, as well as to force the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco, which were part of the Abraham Accords, to take a step back from Israel. And then he goes on to talk. What Israel's worst enemies... Hamas and Iran want is for Israel to invade Gaza and get enmeshed in a strategic overreach there that would make America's entanglement in Fallujah look like a children's birthday party. Hamas and Iran actually do not want Israel to refrain from going into Gaza very deep or long, unquote. Um, and this is the point. This is my one big thing. One of the things that Saudi Arabia has been trying to do, Mohammed bin Salman, since January 2021, is, is a different approach, a diplomatic approach, an inclusive a regional approach that de-escalates conflicts. Um, I think most of the conversation after this attack by Hamas about you know, the Saudi-Israeli normalization process being derailed, um, I, I think it misses the point. I don't know where Saudi Arabia was on this. I think Saudi Arabia was taking this process as far as it would go in a natural conclusion. But Saudi Arabia specifically stated many times that we're not going to do this unless there's serious and, and, and meaningful 
pro progress with regard to the Palestinians and their right to a, to a state um, or some self-governing entity. And specifically, there's an interesting quote here from the Saudi foreign ministry. And it specifically says that the kingdom, quote, repeated warning of the dangers of the explosion of the situation as a result of the occupation, the deprivation of the Palestinian people of their legitimate rights, and the repetition of systematic provocations against its sanctities, unquote. Um, so we have a playbook here, but the playbook is mostly beneficial to Iran, Hamas, and other extremist groups. It's not beneficial to Saudi Arabia or Israel in the long run. And the issue here now is, you know, after, after all the bloodshed that is about to come, and we don't know if it's going to expand. We don't know what Hezbollah is going to do. We don't know what Syrian proxies, I mean, Iranian proxies in Syria, what Syria will do. But if it can be, you know, it, after, after what happens, happens. My sincere hope is that the playbook is thrown out. Because the playbook is, um, at, to this juncture, has been an Israeli unwillingness to really come to any kind of equitable or lasting solution to the problem. And obviously they're dealing with, you know, uh, terrorist organizations, Hamas is a terrorist organization that, that, you know, does not want Israel to exist. So it's not like they're, it's not like they're dealing with nobody. These are very malevolent, violent, uh, entities that want to see Israel removed. Um, so it's not that simple. But the point is, is what this attack did was sort of reaffirm what everybody knows, is that it's an unsustainable situation. And Israel can't reasonably hope to have normalization within the region with key GC states and other states until this is resolved meaningfully and equitably. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia has tried to, you know, has is trying to be diplomatic about this. It's talking, you know, Mohammed bin Salman talks a lot about civilian casualties and trying to protect civilians. Um, but, you know, out there on the table, as we know, is the Arab Peace Initiative, you know, first mooted in 2002. And it's the working framework. And it's pretty simple, you know, in return from normalization, uh, return to 1967 borders, with the understanding that there'd be some swaps to make that and reach some sort of accommodation on Palestinian refugees with the understanding that realistically they're not all coming back, but maybe some can come back. But some, you know, it's there. There's a framework. The hope here, as awful as this is, um, for everybody in concern, and that's, you know, Palestinians and Israeli, Israelis in particular, is that in the aftermath, there's an understanding that the existing playbook, you know, that has been applied for, for, you know, 50 plus years will not get anybody where they want to get to go, get either the Palestinians or the Israelis. So that's sort of a, you know, that's a basic, and, you know, we needed to talk about this topic. Uh, we can't get into all the opinions or the right and the wrong of it. But, you know, my hope is that it's a, you know, it's a death knell for the business as usual. That uh, the United States in particular should urge its, its Israeli partner and ally to not think tactically, but strategically and what's best for it in the long run. And of course, you know, that's going to be hard to do with Iran sort of poking and prodding and, and extremists out there. But we have to move on to a different playbook. I think you can take that to the bay. I mean, I think this deal is now completely destroyed. I, I, you saw the Biden administration, uh, some officials come out and say that they're still hoping for some sort of deal to happen between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I think that that is at least put into the freezer for months, if not longer, if not completely dead. And I think this is good, you know, because uh, look, we talked before the show, uh, Richard, about this topic. We could talk for another eight hours on this topic and not really get all of the you know angles to it 
you know, of course, what you're seeing Correct. online is a, a true lack of nuance and a very disappointing sort of this side versus that side. And there's one right side and there's one wrong side, depending on where you, who you are and where you are. And it's tough because it's like, how can I, how can we fairly weigh in on something so meaningful to millions of people? And for me, I'm so personally so distant from this situation um, for which I feel so enormously fortunate. Um, I feel like we can't sit, t discuss this issue without me at least unequivocally saying, and you have said as well, that I absolutely denounce and am disgusted by what Hamas did. It's murder mm -hmm. and it's senseless violence against women and children. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, the other side, the Israelis have been doing it for millennia. It doesn't matter to me because two wrongs never make a right. And what I saw was horrible. Um, and I think it's, I just, I don't really want to engage with anybody who is not going to agree with me on that because it's never okay to do that. And, you know, so I, I mean, that, that was horrible. I'm sad to see it. At the same time, you also have to say like half of Gaza's 2 million people are under the age of 19. This is all they've known their whole life is Israeli occupation, blockades, rocket, rockets falling from the sky, Hamas rule. I mean, you just can't speak about this issue in a vacuum. That's why it's very tough. Mm -hmm. I, I say unequivocally that I'm absolutely against this attack. It was horrible. I'm absolutely against an overreaction from Israel that involves the killing of innocent women and children. If you want to be on the right side of this issue, you can't do the exact same thing as your enemy is doing. And I think that is very wrong. Um, you know, I mean, this this is a conflict, though, that we do need to discuss because it ropes in every single country in the region and is on the front page of the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, a full page wide story with many other stories. It is a huge deal. Israel is calling it it's 9-11. I mean, that's a big deal. And now, like we engage in discussions about things in Saudi Arabia, and mostly they are, you know, business and trade and some diplomatic. And we discuss it because we are studying this topic and subject and we're pretty far into it we do this podcast every week this issue will touch almost every issue in the middle east that we discuss in this podcast going forward so how can we ignore it so richard i think that was a really really good one big thing and you know i i don't want to go too much into how i feel about it because i don't have anything good to say i don't think anybody really <laughs> cares what i have to say but you know the senseless violence against women and children on both sides i i think must be denounced. That's a very low bar to clear. I expect people to clear that bar if they want to discuss things with me or if, if we want to engage on social media about this issue. Like, if you can't say that what Hamas did was wrong, then like, I don't want to discuss it with you. At the same time, I also don't think it's okay for Israel to just completely level Gaza. And I think we're seeing that. And I, you know, after 9-11, America made a lot of mistakes. And I just for the sake of peace in the region, I would like it if they did not do that. And, you know, I think the deal between the Saudi Arabia and Israel and the U.S. is completely dead. And now I don't know what's going to happen next. So that's all I have to say about this issue. It's not my forte. <laughs> well, no, I had, think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's a very good point. And it makes clear what what I think we both believe is that, you know, we're removed from it. There's there's enmity, enmity and hatred and distrust on all sides and behavior, uh, you know, really uh, despicable behavior on, on all sides. Um, and, you know, that is the fact. And that's why I didn't really, you know, you know, the discussion of, of what Hamas did and what Israel has done and, you know, is really just context for a, a, a hope that there's a different approach. And there is, you know, for Israel, there is, you know, in the broader Middle East, it seems to be changing. And Saudi Arabia has had a hand in that. Um, we don't know. Iran is always there. But there seems to be a different take on how they want to conduct their business diplomatically. And, and the alliances and the thing and, and the conflicts they want to avoid and the, and the engagements they want to pursue. And you can see an Israel in this new world. 
as part of it, integrated. But you can't see as Israel as part of this new world and integrated if they can't reach an accommodation, a fair and equitable solution to the Palestinian issue. And I guess that's the whole point of this, is that this this terrible, brutal, awful thing happened and is unfolding, and it's going to get worse in many ways. Can we Can we get a new playbook? Can the U.S. be part of this? Can Saudi Arabia be part of this? Can Israel philosophically and practically adopt a new playbook that, you know, may enable them to get this new future? Because as it is, this isn't going away. You know, leveling Gaza won't do anything. Uh, it certainly won't resolve the problem and certainly won't make, you know, clear the decks for them to become a, a key part of the, the region. So I'm an eternal optimist. This horrible, horrible thing, maybe something good comes out of it in terms of the way people approach the problem. Yeah, maybe. And then also, and I feel like I'm an optimist as well, but maybe also that a complete overreaction is just going to create a whole new generation of extremists who already are living in a completely isolated area with no power and water. And then airstrikes come in for something they had nothing to do with and you know, kill some of their family members. And it's and it's like it's hard to even put myself in their shoes, but I can only imagine the enormous frustration that they would feel. And, you know, such is the challenge with responding to terrorism attacks um, and, and has been sort of well known for decades about, you know, if you kill innocent people, you're you're going to harden them against you. And it's so like this, this whole thing is so sad. And all I wanted to do is be resolved. And it just seems to be getting worse by the minute. And, uh, you know, I, I just I feel so um, I, I, you know, I personally, I, I express my sympathy, not just for the, you know, Israelis who were and the living Israelis who suffered and survived this attack family members of those who were dead, but also Jews around the world, because this is not their first experience with, um, you know, something so horrible, like a, a, almost a genocide, you know, just a complete targeting of Jews. And, you know, I, I so my heart goes out to them. I'm thinking about them. I feel bad. some of my best friends are Jewish and some of my best friends are Arab and some of my best friends, you know, sympathize so closely with the Palestinian cause because they feel the exact same way. This is the one true, very, very tough diplomatic challenge. that just seems like has just not it's not getting any better. And for the longest time, we had this really optimistic feeling like, hey, <laughs> Saudi Arabia and Israel might normalize relations and the U.S. would broker it. It was too good to be true. So, well, um, it was, and we had our, our, you know, we had our questions about it anyway. But yeah. this, this, does that, and I would add your your feelings for both sides. I mean, the other thing that we've learned is occupation debases both the occupier and the occupied. Yeah, no matter what, you cannot get away from it. No matter how sincere your motivations or how, uh, you know, necessary the the reasons seem. Uh, it it debases everybody involved and it's not going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, and, and the reason why we're talking about this is not because this is the subject of the podcast, but this will touch every subject we do on this podcast in one way or another. So, but, you um, know, I want to, I want to, there isn't, there, you know, where this is the 966 is about Saudi Arabia. I will say this, you know, we're talking specifically about the agony and the pain and the tremendous sadness experienced by both Palestinians and Israelis today. Um, there are players in the region that want something different. And I, you know, I, I guarantee you that, and, and, and I think, I think increasingly Saudi Arabia is one of those players. And I think it's an important addition to the team that wants to see a new future. We'll see where the U S comes in on this. And we'll see if it's even possible or even something that can get on the table to be discussed. But, you know, this is the 966 podcast. Saudi Arabia is actually enmeshed in all of this. You know, wherever they were on normalization with Israel, that's put to the side for a long time. But they had questions anyway. And they had questions for this very reason, because there's a there's an immutable problem right at the core of it all. And, you know, that problem has to be addressed. Yep. 
<laughs> no, I feel bad, I feel bad doing a one big thing because yeah, no. like, <laughs> well, you know, this is hard because <laughs> you and I both. It's such a, it's such a, it's a both a difficult topic. It's a touchy topic, and that's why. And I like your additions, and that it has nothing to do with taking sides. It has everything to do with hoping that there might be a new approach. Right, and and this is you know as a podcast, as you know. You know, there we can't be a news source for this. We can't be CNN International. Right. We're not going to have a 966 rep on the ground in Gaza giving us reporting, right? So we're kind of we're we're, we're analyzing the media, and, and then we, as people that are doing a podcast in Saudi Arabia, provide some opinions. But you know, we're Americans doing this, and that it's actually part of our secret sauce because we have this sort of long view of Saudi Arabia that we've been doing this for so long. You know, we're not, as you say, we're not like experts, but I mean, we're, we, we do spend a lot of time on this. And so it's just, yeah, I mean, like we can't really like, th there are podcasts on this and, you know, we've had people that are experts on this topic on the podcast and we'll have more. John Alterman has been giving really good interviews recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Abdelaziz Al-Gashayan. I mean, we've had some people that are experts on the issue. And so anyway, so we will at some point in the future, but it just, yeah, we have to like weigh in. Otherwise it's just like the elephant in the room. We just completely don't talk about it. Well, my, yeah, my one big thing is significantly lighter. Yeah, good, good. Bring it on. <laughs> ben Zema. Uh, excellent. Um, and we love this topic. Yeah. So hopefully I'm even pronouncing it correctly, but anyway, we're, we're moving on to Benzema. So I, um, Benzema is, of course, uh, if you don't dare visit Jeddah, by the way, in Saudi Arabia without knowing this full well, he's Benzema is the striker for Jeddah's Ali Tahad. Uh, he signed us three-year deal. He's a two-time Ballon d'Or winner. So he's one of the best football players in the world, bar none. 35-year-old. Um, Jeddah, by the way, Richard, we discussed this in a previous episode. Ali Tahad was founded in 1927. That's kind of amazing. And every time I see that, I'm like, that's kind of insane. Yeah. So it's, it's the oldest. It's it's the oldest. Yeah. And there is a a very, very strong fan base for Saudi Arabia. Not, <laughs> or sorry, for Ali Tahad, not just in Jeddah, but across Saudi Arabia, which is really kind of cool to see. Like I had a Uber driver in Al Kobar who was like, yeah, Ali Tahad. And I was just like, let's see the other side of the country. He's like, yep, but Benzema. So anyway, huge fan base, huge club. Benzema gave an interview, and this is my one big thing because I thought it was pretty interesting what he said uh, in this interview to the, the media arm of the Saudi Pro League. Um, he said, so he's now in Saudi Arabia playing. He said that he joined Al Ittihad, and this was in the interview, this summer because he always wanted to live in Saudi Arabia and, quote, help Saudi football grow. That is not something you're going to hear a lot of these other global football superstars say ever in interviews. I mean, the tactful ones will say, I I'm excited about this opportunity. They won't mention the massive paychecks they're getting. But Benzema really took a different tact with this. He said, I joined Ali Taha this summer, um, wanted to help Saudi football grow. Uh, he said after uh, Real Madrid, he was there for 14 years, he wanted to try a new challenge. And then he said, quote, well, with everything I've made and gained with Real Madrid, I think it was for me the good moment to try a new challenge. For a really long time, even before football, I always wanted to come here, here meaning Saudi Arabia. And this is the quote that I thought was interesting. Also, it's a Muslim country. Straight away, I felt this love for me on and off the pitch. I feel good. This country welcomed me with open arms. I feel the love of the people here. So obviously that makes me very happy. I really want to help Saudi football grow. Ali Tahad was a project that was just starting to burst from everywhere. So from my side, I wanted to be part of the story. That's the reason I came here. Um, he added, I'm really surprised and pleased about the level of games here. Really surprised because in Europe, we don't watch much football from here. Nowadays, we are watching more and more because of the big names they signed. Um, you know, and then the article discusses all the names that have been signed. Nicola Conte, Jota. I mean, you have Ronaldo. I mean, there's Neymar. I mean, a ton of big names are now playing in the Saudi Pro League. Um, and, you know, I just thought this was really interesting because a lot of these players that played for international teams played in the EPL or across Europe or wherever they came from and are now playing in Saudi Arabia with, you know, large paychecks. Very few of them are Muslim, are, are, are followers of Islam. And I thought, like, that's actually a really interesting angle. He's he is a very uh, he's a practicing Muslim and um, his 
girlfriend with which he has his fourth child. I don't have her name in front of me, actually. Um, a supermodel, of course, has also converted <laughs> to Islam. And, um, you know, I just thought this was an interesting angle. He said, look, this this, you know, country has a very significant place in my life because Saudi Arabia is home to the two most holy sites in Islam. And as a Muslim, there's this like extra incentive for him to come and play in Saudi Arabia. I just, and this is really short because I mean, this is all it is, but I just thought, well, that's, you know, really interesting. That explains why he has so many fans in, especially Jeddah, but uh, you know, across Saudi Arabia. And I think that, you know, that's just an interesting angle. Like Ronaldo is not a Muslim. Um, Neymar is not a Muslim. A lot of these players are not Muslim, but he is. And so for him, there's this extra juice playing in Saudi Arabia. And this interview was easily the most positive that any player has given about the Saudi Pro League, about what he's doing at Al Itahad, and how much he likes living in Saudi Arabia, which I think is really cool. So um, he, you know, he said the team hasn't changed from last year, which is good. There have only been a few reinforcements. I mean, you know, the Ballon d'Or winner would count as a reinforcement, definitely. He says, we have a good squad. We're working well, well together. They're in fourth place now in the league. Um, Al-Halal Al is still ahead. And I know that because, um, you know, we talk about it on the show, Richard, but also before I got off my flight, some guy was refreshing uh, my last flight here, which was actually from Switzerland, which is super weird, but the guy was refreshing the Saudi Pro League standings. I guess they were playing a game and he was, <laughs> I kept seeing Al-Halal at the top. I felt really bad for looking over his shoulder, but I was like, why is this guy looking? That's, that's interesting. You just randomly see that. So yeah, Al-Halal is in top place, but, um, just interesting. I mean, good for Benzema. I mean, this interview was very, very, the, the first such very positive interview about this league, which is actually really taking off. And just the last thing to add to this um, was just in Saudi Arabia for about 10 days. And on the nights in which games were played, the streets were noticeably quieter when games were on and games were being played in virtually every restaurant. Every restaurant seemed to have some sort of setup, you know, a big TV or a projection screen. And like streets were quiet during games. I mean, the Saudi Pro League is enormously popular in Saudi Arabia, and we know that. But just like seeing it, I was like, whoa, that's I mean, like that's like almost like the Super Bowl every single weekend where people are just not doing anything else but watching Pro League. So anyway, cool, cool interview. You can check that out. It's an ESPN.com link. And I think the video is also linked to that. So just uh, really, really, really interesting stuff. I love that. And I don't, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, he's, um, everybody has their own reasons. And it, we, we talked to, we've, we've, we've gone pretty deep into the Saudi pro league in terms of even the demographics. I mean, he's 35, but the average age of the transfers was 27. So you've got some youngsters too. Obviously a guy like Benzema is, you know, a premier, you know, marquee get because he's a Ballon d'Or winner and because he's a real talent. Um, but, uh, it's, you know, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a really, you know, remember we did this, the topic on, remember we did, um, uh, on the Islamic Hijra and the Islamic year and how, if you're a Muslim, you have to sort of in your head, keep two calendars, a Gregorian calendar and the Islamic calendar, Hijra calendar. And, uh, it's those, you know, if you're abroad or whatever, as a Muslim, it's those sort of constant reminders that you're not someplace that's home. You know what I mean? And it's got to be fascinating for a guy like Benzema to, you know, to hear the Muslim call five times a day. You know, he's Algerian, but he grew up in France. So, you know, this is, this is you know, as a, as a Muslim, that's, that's got to be a wonderful thing where everybody's doing this at the same time. Yeah, he's like, this is, sure, as <laughs> you... Uh, you don't need to write me this big of a check to come here. I actually really want to, but but I'll take it. No problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, special but, week this week, Richard. No interview. We'll be back with interviews for the next several months. Uh, so I mean, this is don't get used to this. But let's jump right into yellow Saudi in a minute. <laughs> By the way, I, I should just note. Uh, as you know, I was with Al-Rahman Al-Kaban this, this week and last weekend in Al-Ala. And whenever I said Yalla, 
like, all right, yeah, well, let's go after lunch to go to see something. He'd be like, Saudi in the minute. <laughs> I'm like, wow, what? Oh, yeah, the podcast. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So we're, we're conditioning. We have it. We're conditioning all our listeners, you know, so they have to put up with our, our nonsense. Indeed. <laughs> um, uh, Yellow number one. As Saudi Arabia's ongoing efforts to en enhance its business environment, the Ministry of Investment has developed a mechanism to grant premium residency to executives based at regional headquarters. Furthermore, the Investment Ministry is working closely with the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development to implement incentives for employees at regional headquarters. These incentives include granting visas based on the company's requirements, enabling spouses under the family residency to work, and extending the age limit for dependents allowed to stay with regional headquarters employees to 25 years. Yeah, much needed um, reforms. I mean, much needed new rules if they want to compete with Dubai. Like, the, 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 this is good. This is very good. And they need to keep pushing ahead with some of these reforms and some of these changes and and op continue to open Saudi Arabia up if it wants to compete with Dubai for the regional HQ stuff. Um, and so this is very good. Uh, you know, it's hard, like, because Dubai is just so global and it's so, you know, these things are, are granted and given in Dubai, right? And there's also alcohol and there's sort of a, a more concentrated downtown in Dubai versus Riyadh. So this is very good for, for Saudi Arabia to do, to move ahead with things like this, to move ahead with other reforms, make it easier as they have to get in and out of the country. I mean, again, as you know, just getting in and out right now of Saudi Arabia is so easy and streamlined. It's it's impressive. It's easier than getting in and out of the U.S. as a visitor, at least for me. Um, so it's, I mean, more of this stuff for Saudi Arabia to, to compete because this is very good. Well, and this is actually an inadvertent teaser for our guest next week. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. We're having our next next episode is we have a wonderful guest from Frontier View on the regional HQ program. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that because we have lots of questions about that. And there's lots of questions about it, where it is and that sort of thing. So uh, this, is, this is good news. And this is also... Um, a certain self-awareness in terms of uh, Saudi Arabia and that, uh, you know, you have to, there's a lot of factors involved in making a choice. And certainly this one, you know, as simple as a recent one that allowed you to use whatever driver's license you had for a year, you know, so if I have a U.S. driver's license and I move to Saudi Arabia, I can drive on my U.S. driver's license for a year. I don't have to immediately go down and get a new driver's license or pass a test or whatever. All these things, little things, big things, make it easier if this is the choice you're going to make. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed, I can do that. I'm not going to do that. It's <laughs> yes, <still> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yellow number two, the public investment, best, excuse me, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia and Saudi electricity company on Sunday launched a company to develop electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the kingdom. According to an official statement, the electric vehicle infrastructure company, which will quote, establish its presence in more than 1000 locations, installing over 5000 fast chargers by 2030 in cities across Saudi Arabia, end quote. The Sovereign Wealth Fund will own a 75% stake in the company, while the SEC will hold the remaining 25% stake. Another loss leader, you know, an in industry. I mean, what, what, what's your, in terms of electric vehicle, what is, what are the disincentives for you? Well, let's say if we could buy an electric vehicle. I mean, for me, it's range. You know, I have, I have, you know, my daughter's, you know, 500 miles away at school. Um, you know, my son up until recently has been 580 miles away. You know what I mean? I mean, I, 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 it, it concerns me. And so, you know, and what do we have? I think in the U.S. we have something like over 160,000 EV chargers around the country. Uh, it's something that needs to be available if you're going to gonna promote the sector and have any kind of growth in terms of EVs. And this is very PIF-ish to say, all right, we'll just take the lead on this and we'll get it started. Yeah. One of my disincentives is that a lot of times the charging for electric vehicles is actually powered by coal or oil. So it's not really like helpful for the environment if you get down to it. Right. Um, and so like, I'd love an electric car, 
especially lucid um but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, you if, know. It's, if it's a coal-fired power plant that's that's charging up the car it's like okay but yeah i mean but but, but see yeah. to your point and to our point the reason we love a lucid is because their top of the line has a 500 mile range yes range so, is key i mean you range have is the key range. and lucid yeah. has a terrific range so yes you know you know range is a disincentive on some vehicles but i just want everyone to know not a lucid yes <laughs> 500 miles is pretty good i mean 500 miles is a Best. long drive so it's yeah. you know that's that you're you're fine um with with 500 miles definitely <laughs> um uh, yeah, but yeah. this is really cool. I mean, you know, because this is great for Saudi Arabia and, and again, lost leader. But when it's in place, your incentives to, you know, get an EV as a Saudi, like you were just saying, you know, what what would really hold me back? Well, if there was no charger anywhere near me either, that would definitely be a problem. There is. So whatever. But yeah, <laughs> you every every trip when you'd have to you'd have to basically whatever the range capacity of your vehicle is, you have to cut it in half because you can only go out and come back because you got to charge back at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Yellow number three, uh, Saudi Arabia's latest projection of modest budget deficits over the medium term of around 2% of GDP in its 2024 pre-budget statement, PBS, will, um, marks a shift away from the previous set of medium term figures that projected annual surpluses and a decline in government debt GDP, says Fitch Ratings. The government estimates that 2023 spending will be up by 32% year on year. 13% above budgeted levels. Spending will be broadly flat in 2024 before trending higher again in 2025 and 2026. These numbers are well in excess of previous medium-term projections in the 2023 budget that envisioned annual surpluses. 2025 spending will be 15% higher than previous planned. This policy recalibration reflects the decision to make more use of the kingdom's fiscal space to support strong non-oil economic growth and press ahead with economic and social priorities under the Vision 2030 Strategic Development Plan. That last sentence really is is the key to this because it's, I mean, if they weren't diversifying the economy, they could throttle back spending big time. I mean, big time. But they, and we just used loss leader in the last segment. We're going to talk um, a little bit about the regional HQ program next week uh, with our guests. And, and that actually fits into this. This is all part of just getting the economy to be diversified. And that is expensive. So this data is, is uh, not too shocking, at least. I don't know how, how you react to it, Richard. But I mean, yeah, they're, they've got extra money and they're spending to get the economy to be self-sufficient versus how it is now. Well, this speaks to a conversation we've had on the show. I mean, you've heard me refer to Saudi Arabia's in a moment, and also we've asked the question, what happens when that moment's passed? By that, I mean the enormous you know, oil revenues that they had in 2022. Well, this is what their moment is. I mean, they, they're basically going to say, okay, we've got room to borrow. We're going to deficit spend because we are all in on this economic diversification. We're all in on Vision 2030. And you know, the time is now. You know, now is not the time, and and that's almost Keynesian. You know what I mean? If you're trying to 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 uh, grow an economy, you don't cut back; you spend more. And um, you know, this this pre-budget uh, statement, you know, it doesn't have all details, but I guess the document emphasizes, and this is another interesting aspect of Saudi Arabia's priorities. It emphasizes education, healthcare, and the environment as priorities and the, the the full 2024 budget will you know get into wages and subsidies and that sort of thing but uh, to me this is a great sign because this answers my question what are you going to do when the revenues decline are you going to pull back which has been typical in terms of cycles or are you going to sort of counter cyclical and really keep it going and invest and this is what they're going to do and i think that's exactly the right thing to do the time is now yeah, time is now. Can't take your foot off the pedal. And like you just said, you got to stick with it. Stick with the plan, the vision, as it is called. But stick with it. I mean, it's working. Um, yellow number four, Saudi Arabia and India have come together in an agreement that outlines cooperation between the two nations in crucial areas such as electrical interconnection, green and clean hydrogen, and supply chains. Facilitated in collaboration with the Secretariat of the UN Framework on Convention 
On climate change, the MOU underscores cooperation in conducting essential studies related to electrical interconnection, collaborative, collaborative development of green, clean hydrogen, and renewable energy projects, engagement with specialized entities and companies in the fields of electrical interconnection and green, clean hydrogen. So uh, I think there's a little bit of a, a double paste on that. So I'm very sorry for everybody, <laughs> but uh, yeah, very interesting. Saudi, India is on the definite upswing. Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, everyone worries about China, but Saudi Arabia is very actively, you know, obviously the largest country by population is now India. I mean, India, I mean, was second just to Saudi last year in terms of, well, it was, you know, annualized growth of 7.2% last year, expected to grow 6.3%, um, more than China, you know, India's stock markets outperformed China's for the past three years. Some of that's because of Chinese policy on the pandemic. But the point being is that this is a major market that Saudi Arabia is going hard to cultivate and grow and tie in. And, you know, we're not even talking about the Indian Middle East Europe uh, corridor uh, proposal. But uh, again, and this is why This is now what we know after the one big thing, but you know, discussions about the the political advantages of an Israeli Saudi normalization to the US, how somehow Saudi Arabia will be brought back under the US umbrella were silly. Saudi Arabia is not going to give up these tremendously important economic ties to Asia, India as an example, China as an example, on and on. Do you know what I mean? That's not what Saudi Arabia is looking at it for that side. Um, they were looking to lock in a, a, a you know, a, a strong, long-lasting relationship with Saudi Arabia, I mean, with the U.S., as well as, you know, to complement what they're doing elsewhere, not to not to replace it. So anyway, this is this is really interesting. And, and we put it in there because of that. India's coming on strong. Yeah. Nor should we as Americans expect that of Saudi Arabia if we want Saudis to have, uh, you know, if we're looking after Saudi Arabia's best interest, I should just add, because... I mean, this is good. This is good for them. But, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't want a relationship with any other country where we are the the significantly bigger brother and we demand everything. It's like, but that's not doesn't necessarily benefit us and has enormously high costs. So, for Saudi Arabia to find a position in the region that is beneficial to itself strengthens the United States. If you take that view, spot on. But the problem is, old habits die hard. Sure. And, you know, yes. <laughs> we, you know, I, I think, you know, Saudi Arabia has rethought its future and its relationships. You know, we need to do the same thing. I think we're in the process of doing it. But, you know, it's it's their old habits do die hard. Indeed, especially for old Uncle Sam in the region. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Yellow number five, according to OAG, Saudi Arabia has around 7.8 million tourists during the first quarter of this year. The results of the nation's highest quarterly performance representing a 64% increase compared to the same period pre-pandemic. The World Tourism Organization ranked Saudi Arabia 13th worldwide for receive, receiving international tourists last year. Saudia, the largest airline in the country, appropriately carries the most capacity at more than 40%. Fly a deal and fly NAS follow after sharing about 25%. Inbound capacity from within the Middle East remains highest where it has grown by 23% since 2019. This represents 80% of all international capacity. Uh, and the second biggest market after the Middle East is Asia Pacific, which has grown by almost a quarter and represents 10% of KSA's international capacity. You, you can see this over there. If you see it, I mean, it's yeah. The airport's busier. The hotels are 2x what they used to be oh, a few goodness. years ago. Um, the traffic is getting out of control. People are going to restaurants that are just opening up and are completely crowded and you need a reservation. I mean, people are visiting Saudi Arabia, full stop. And you're seeing not just that people are going and people are experiencing it and traveling there, but that every time you go more and more people are doing it and the numbers are starting to bear that out and this is we, we've discussed tourism before richard uh, on as sort of the thing that touches almost every other sector and so and especially is very key for vision 2030 we're about to run into um riyadh season so like you know we, we may get a huge bump here in the fourth quarter for people that are going to go in 
you also have a, a football league that is starting to attract people to come visit from the region because they're some of the best superstars in the world are playing there. So like good on, good on them for this. This is, this has been a goal and they have hit it. And now they've elevated their goal to 150 million tourists, tourists by 2030, because they think they're going to easily meet the previous goal, hundred million way before that. Good on them. Uh, you, you know, you love to see it as they say. <laughs> hundred percent. And um, one of the interesting things, this OAG report was interesting and had some good data, but in 2023, for the first time, international capacity surpassed domestic capacity, um, which is another telling thing about, you know, what they're trying to do and, and the progress they're making. Mm-hmm. Got to see more Americans going there um, as well. It's a, it's we a lag. Flip. Yeah, we yeah. lag. Yeah. And they're really trying to, really trying to make it easier for the Chinese. They see the Chinese as a, as a, really key tourism market. Yes, more Americans. And that was something you, you probably remember. I might have mentioned that. I didn't see when I was in Alula, I, I, I didn't see a lot of Americans. You, you may have seen some more, but I didn't see a lot. It's amazing, too, because we really stick out, you know. <laughs> when, well, six foot six white guy. Yeah, exactly. He's American. Yeah, this guy's American. Uh, <laughs> Yellow number six trial runs will begin for the first ever hydrogen powered passenger train in Riyadh next week. Saudi Arabia's energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman Al Saud, said on Sunday, Saudi Arabian Railways, in partnership with Alstom, will operate and demonstrate the world's first hydrogen-powered passenger train. SAR and Alstom signed a Memorandum of Understanding in September 2022 to develop hydrogen infrastructure for the Desert Kingdom. Although hydrogen trains have been operating in parts of Europe since 2022, they are not passenger trains. Alstom's Coradia Island, uh, I, like the letter I, Lint, interesting branding, will travel yeah, 10 to 20 <laughs> kilometers on SAR's East Network Line 1 or Line 2 in Riyadh. That's cool. Very that's, cool. And, yeah. you know, emphasis on trial. And that's one of the things about so much Saudi is doing. I mean, there's, again, we don't know how all this is economically feasible, but they're giving it a go. And, you know, they, obviously they're going to have to have distribution and uh, production capabilities to make this, you know, in scale. But this is very cool to see a, a test and mm-hmm. I guess it's going to be running for a couple months. So, you know, I guess when we're over there next, we can maybe see, catch a ride on a hydrogen train. That'd be sweet. That would be a, <laughs> that'd be something new for sure. Um, <laughs> very cool. Um, yeah, this is, this is interesting. They, they are still, they still haven't rolled out the Riyadh Metro just yet. Um, uh, it's now, October, you see the trains running tests all over the place. Yeah. It's, we're waiting for that, but uh, this is this is very cool. And um, Coradia Island, Coradia, uh, so, yeah, yeah, you know, doesn't quite roll Alstom, off. Yeah. Alstom did all the trains for the metro too. Alstom's big in Saudi. Yeah, yeah. Richard, very good, good one. Um, we will be back next week, sort of on our on our previous clip. We'll have some really really good guests coming up. We don't like to tease who's coming up because, uh, and I'm speaking to you, <laughs> who knows it better than anybody. There are some <laughs> adjustments in scheduling. We, you know, because there's a long queue of, of guests, we, we, it's anyways, it's tough, but we have some really good ones coming up. But this was actually quite fun, you know, just the boys hanging out. It was. It's always a blast. Yeah. In terms of guests, you know, I hope everyone sees this as a you know a well-run, informative thing, but do not look behind the curtain. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it can Just get messy. Just as if you were in a sausage factory, you do not <laughs> exactly. want to see uh, what is underneath the thobe. Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, because so we have wonderful guests. Sometimes they sometimes they come together nicely, and other times it's uh, it takes a while to get them. But when they get here, we love them. It, uh, I just will add, which is really interesting, and I'm always taken aback by this. Some people that I that I talk to have, have said they're like, "Yeah, the guest, you know, the guest thing's interesting," but I, I really like Yella. I like sometimes I just skip to Yella because I get oh, the news, awesome. and, I, and I'm like, "Oh, well, that's great," because that's you know, we're just talking and reading news clips. So. Well, that's very cool. I, yeah. I mean, I, I will so. say, and we've talked about, it, we have nine segments every show. Yep, that's a boatload of content, and. 
it, it we I, we like the format because it enables us to sort of prioritize. And same thing we do with the review every day. All right, these are important storylines, but these are also storylines. Mm-hmm. And it's it really gives us an opportunity to cover the field as well as you can cover the field, you know, since it's a huge field and it's moving. But uh, I, that's really nice to hear that people, uh, you know, gravitate to Yella and think it's worth their listen. Yep. This thing is working out. Um, I mentioned this, but September was a record year for us by a very significant, a record month for us, excuse me, by a very significant margin. Um, and it, it com- kind of follows on a trend that is going straight up. If you look at the graph of total listeners, it's like in one direction, it's up. But September was a big old jolt. And I'm not really sure why, but I think that we're getting a lot of traction here. So thanks everybody for listening. It really is. It's really nice that you guys are spending time with us. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.